suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. We're back, episode 411, the last episode for 2023. We'll get this one done and then we'll have a little break. I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist, coming in loud and clear from regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Joe, g'day listeners. It's a little bit wet up here because of the cyclone that is bearing down on Cairns. They're expecting it to cross the coast tomorrow at 1pm, in which case the rain will continue probably through until the end of Thursday. And Joe's in the UK, so you'd know all about Mm. rain, Joe. Oh yeah, it's it's barely stopped since I've been here. Mm. (laughs) Tell the listener about the stormwater and the sewerage system you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, so as far as I know, they don't generally have storm drains here, so the water just goes straight into the sewerage system. And uh, it just isn't built for the volume of rain that um, they're getting these days. Mm. And so they're getting more and more floods, flash flooding. Yep. Uh, also, the amount of building, which means less soil to soak up the the, the rain. Yep, more runoff um, into the drains, yep. More runoff, modern farming practices, tractors compact the soil. Basically, they're getting more and more runoff and places of flooding that never used to flood. And the sewerage system would be failing because it's full of and stormwater. Yeah, the sewerage system backs up and there are sewage releases. Crazy. And, of course, it's all it's all privatised, so, of course, they've got no incentive to improve it. <laughs> yeah. Sounds awful and smelly. So, anyway, mm. here in Brisbane, it's lovely and sunny. So, anyway, if you're in the chat room, say hello Landon is in the chat room. Coming in loud and clear from China? Would Landon, is Landon in China? Beijing. Beijing, okay. He's in Beijing, but he's also, I think he's heading down to Thailand for his holiday, so I couldn't right. tell you. I, I understand he's still in Beijing right now, but he could be down in Chiang Mai, I don't know. No doubt he'll tell us in the chat. And Watley coming in loud and clear from, I think, is it Tenterfield? I think, Watley, might be your area or... I think that's it. Anyway, if you're in the chat room or you come into the chat room, say hello and make some comments. We'll try to incorporate them if we can. Often that's difficult, but, hey, just make some jokes amongst yourself there. Armadale is Watley. That's right. Did I tell you about He's the international man of mystery. Yeah. Did I? T- uh, Armadale. Given this is the last episode of the year, we can be a little indulgent on this one. Did I ever, did I, did I ever tell you about the coldest night of my life? which was spent in Armadale. Did I ever tell you that story? No. Right. So my wife and I were driving to Sydney and her brother-in-law said, oh, you can stop at Armadale on the way. His mother had moved into a nursing home and her home in Armadale was vacant. So on the way down, we could just call in, sleep overnight and then keep going. Free accommodation. We said, beauty. Anyway, we got into Armadale and it was bitterly cold. It was freezing. And this house had been unoccupied for months. So it hadn't had any heating. And it was as cold inside as it was outside. 
And anyway, it's late, it's dark. We get look quick look in the bedroom and there's an electric there's an electric blanket on the bed. I said to my wife, fantastic. Fire that up and we'll be fine. Anyway, that night I'm tossing and turning and couldn't sleep because I was just still cold. And in the morning, eventually, you know, the sun rises and my wife wakes up and I said, oh, that was a terrible night. Like, that was awful. It was so cold. And she said, that was perfectly fine. I, I lean over and put my arm around her. She's as warm as toast. And it struck me. It was one of those electric blankets that had a dual control. So she only heated up her side of the bed with the electric blanket. <laughs> she was as warm as toast and I froze my butt off and we were in the same bed. See, Trevor, you should have... You should have snuggled more. That's the point. That is the point. So there's a lesson for you, dear listener. The coldest night of my life was in Armadale in a bed with an electric blanket. <laughs> Here we go. It does seem very cold. Yeah. All right, that was a diversion. Scott, we've got a new premier in Queensland. All of a sudden, Anastasia Palaszczuk resigned. Stephen Miles has got the gig. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm pleased she finally stepped down rather than actually howling out to the very bitter end. It clearly has boosted Labor's chances in the state poll. Mm. It's one of those things. I don't fully understand why the public turns on leaders after a number of years, but she has been in that job since 2012, hasn't she? Yeah, 2012. Mm. So, you know, it's been a long time. And she was just the – she was always referred to as the accidental premier who – got the gig after the um, Labor Party was reduced to seven or eight or something rather MPs. Mm. That was an incredibly low number. And she only got the gig because there was no one else left standing, so she got it. Mm. It's one of those things. Now, she has been quite a good Premier, though. She has got a number of things up that were... Very divisive for a number of years. She got abortion law reform through. She mm. got voluntarists dying through. She got everything. You know, she got through a couple of good things that you can really point to and that type of thing. You did, can actually did, say, well done. Did Just okay that. during COVID pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. She did. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, um, um, she's picked up a boyfriend in recent times. Yeah, and, and that's the better half was... Yeah. yeah, the better half reckons that she's gone off the boil because of the boyfriend. So I have to wait. I reckon there'd be something in that. Yeah. Because yeah. she was enjoying her time, I think. Yeah. Whereas previously it was just Young work, work, love, work. Eh? Yeah. I actually know him. I used to play frisbee. Oh, yeah, I used to play ultimate disc frisbee in this pickup game in the park, and, and he was one of the players there. So, yeah, there we go. Small world, Brisbane, dear listener. It yes. is, yeah. Mm. Um. Anyway, I'm not sure Stephen Miles is the right man for the job, but, yeah. you know, it's one of those things. It appears to be a factional deal because they're both from the same faction. So mm. I remember speaking to somebody is what it is. who has some connections in the Labor Party. I won't say her name, but I said, yeah. you know, Stephen Miles appears really stiff and um, almost robotic in his speeches in front of camera. But apparently in real life, in person, he's quite charming and personable and and it, this strange sort of robotic delivery 
comes in when he's in front of the camera, but when he's not, he's quite a charming, intelligent sort of character. So there you go. I'm sure he'll get used to it. Mm, yeah. Well, he's used to it. I think it's just a sort of a training or a mode he goes into. Um, right. But I was hopeful that this might lead to a change in the religious instruction laws because mm. apparently when he is asked about religious instruction, he kind of rolls his eyes indicating that he thinks it's a heap of rubbish. And so... Have you given the game away here? So... Have you now, have you now opened him up as a target for the <laughs> Australian theocratic fascist lobby? Maybe I have. So I certainly wanted him rather than Cameron Dick, who I think is quite right-wing and religious. The other one, Shannon Fentanham, Fentiman would have been okay as well, I think. But anyway, the problem is that it turns out that... Well, those three were all from the left faction, but Cameron Dick was from the right faction. So. Yeah. The problem is that one of the big players in this, in assisting him getting in, was Grace Grace. And so mm, he's going and to... she's a nut. He's going to owe her. And I don't know if it's Grace Grace who was hanging on to R.I. or whether it was Anastasia Palaszczuk. So... It's hard to know. Well, one of those two women were. One of those two women were behind that. Yes. So yeah, if it was one, given, you never going to know. Given Grace Grace's comments, mm. I would suggest that she was certainly for it. You think so? Because you not remember with the the Satanist thing. Yeah, she went overboard, didn't she? So she um, did. She was beyond <laughs> beyond what was necessary <laughs> to defend a policy. It wasn't. I've been coerced into this position by my leadership. Yeah. No. Yeah. True. It really wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So initially when I heard Stephen Miles, I thought, great, R.I. might be in the firing line. And then when I heard Grace Grace was one of the key players that got him in, I was like, whoops, maybe not so good. So we'll see what happens with that one. We just have to wait and see about that because which faction is Grace Grace from? Is she from the right or left faction? She's from the old guard. Right. She helped... Miles is in the left faction. So she rounded up the old guard faction and got them to swing behind Miles. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's how that worked, I believe. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things. You just got to wonder how long those loyalties and everything last. If he, if he, if he gets a solid election victory under his belt and that sort of thing, if he actually improves the Labor Party position in the next parliament, which under Palaszczuk wasn't looking all that possible. Now it could be possible. Mm-hmm. If he gets if he gets a reasonable election victory and that sort of stuff under his belt, then he might be able to turn around her and say, well, RI's got to go, in which case if Grace Grace was actually saying, well, I'll, I'll pull the backing from him, then the rest of the ba- rest of them might actually turn around and say, no, fuck you, he's done a good job for us. Also, so stick with- he might well promote her in some different ministry. She can probably have no, a pick exactly. of what Which she wants be, to do. So that yeah. might, if it gets her out of education and somebody else in, mm. they could approach mm. it with a fresh set of eyes and do whatever they want to, maybe. So, mm. yeah. We'll see how that all pans out. Who knows? You know, none of this has anything to do with the merits of the case and whether it's a good idea to get rid of RI. It's all to do with power plays and factional dealings. Yes, factional uh, politics, Yeah. yeah. All the good arguments in the world are meaningless. It's just who owes who a favour and who happens to be in a certain mm. position at a certain time. Yeah. Quickly on to federal labour, there was an article in Crikey by Guy Rundle just sort of 
suggesting that Labor's deserted the working man and looking at things that federal Labor has done, which is good, um, comprehensive labour law reform. There's a lot of laws passed in relation to, like, gig workers, treating them the same as normal workers and some other good stuff there, which we haven't really got into detail about. Because I haven't really mm. come across any articles that explain it quite well. So I'll try and hunt some down. Americans weren't like that. Uh, the Americans, Treating gig workers as human beings. Yes, yeah. they, they weren't like that. So that's one thing this government's done. And they did provide some housing assistance, but it took the Greens to beef that up into something more meaningful in the short term. And, and they supported the minimum wage-wise in the Fair Work Commission. That's about it. On the negative side, still haven't done anything about it at all. They keep going with stage three tax cuts, commitment to AUKUS, don't seem to be doing much on the environment and seem to be supporting Israel rather than in, in preference to the Palestinians rather than saying there's a lot of fault on both sides here. So, I yeah. think that that was probably just a little bit overdone because Penny Wong did actually say... Israel has the right to defend themselves, but it's the way in which they defend themselves that they've actually got to be careful of. Mm. So I think she was actually saying you can, you know, you've got to actually watch what you do and that sort of thing. You've got to be careful that you're not killing as many civilians as you are. Yeah. But she didn't actually say it. Yeah, she could have said this is wrong, this genocidal campaign you've got going on here. You're just going too far. It's just terrible. What's going on there? Yeah, I suppose you're right there. It's just, you know, Israel's not an ally or anything like that mm. of Australia. It's, they are just Is, basically on the same. Israel's not an ally of anybody. Yeah. No, I know that. They're, but, they're in Israel for Israel's sake. But even if they it's were. One of, yeah, I know. You, you should be able to be critical of your friends. Mm. And it looks like they are not as critical as Trevor wants them to be. And I also think to myself they probably could be a little more critical than what they have been. It's um, Well, Anthony Albanese, the younger 20-year-old version, would have been far more critical mm, than absolutely the 60-year-old version. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. He mm. would have been. It's just one of those things you've. Uh, you got to accept with the sweet passage of time, you do mellow somewhat in your thinking. Mm. and People become more conservative. Yeah, they do. Absolutely, they do. Mm. I, I know some Jews who have been saying how much that they feel that Israel has lost its way. The Israel of the 1960s, the 1970s is not the Israel of the 2000s. Right. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly mm. with that. You know, it's just one of those things. Israel, you know, used to be it used to be quite a good country, that sort of thing. It, it, it's it stood the rule of law and all that type of thing. It it did it actually stand up for itself and it did actually put them well and truly back in their place. But with this recent Netanyahu government, you've actually got to be really concerned about them because you know it wasn't all that long ago that the streets of tel aviv were packed with people that are out there protesting against their government mm. yeah mm. where is the israeli power is that in tel aviv or is that in jerusalem i would sure. assume tel aviv yeah mm. don't know here's another test for labor so there's a productivity commission report 
and it's come out and has made a recommendation to remove financial reporting exemptions given to thousands of religious charities. So most charities are required to provide financial information and basically the bigger you are, the more information you have to give. And of course, religions have a certain type of privilege where they're exempted from a lot of this. So basic religious charities is a term that's there and they have lower reporting requirements. And this Productivity Commission has come out and said, nope, should get rid of that religious exemption. There's a test of secularism for the federal Labor government to see whether they can come through with that. Do you reckon they yeah, will, yeah, Scott or Joe? Do you think they'll actually follow the one recommendation? Would hope, one would hope they're going to use it as cover themselves and say, well, the Productivity Commission has required this, so we're going to go ahead and do it. What I would have thought would be a bigger test of Labor's commitment to secularism would be the religious, ex- uh, the religious persecution legislation, mm-hmm. which they have actually talked about bringing back. Yes. No, What's allowing think, the religious people to persecute others? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. You know, because they, they want to be able to throw rocks at people like me and call me a D and everything else, mm. but they don't want to throw rocks at them for being kitty fiddlers. Mm. Mm. We'll see. Anyway, that would be an easy one, I would have thought, to follow the Productivity Commission's Absolutely. recommendation, but I don't hold out a lot of hope. We'll see what happens. Look, end of year, haven't mentioned them for a while. Before I forget, a big thank you to the patrons of this podcast. Recently, Yam Yam Blue upgraded. Thank you, Yam Yam. So if you are a patron, you can always upgrade. And I'll just quickly run through from the newest to the oldest. Big thanks. Our 2023 new patrons, Paige and Damien Van Schneidel. From 2022, we've still got... Danny Obrad, anti-US sentiment, and Mark Lavelle. From 2021, we've still got Tom, Rico, Greg P, and Shannon. From 2020, we've still got Matt Dwyer, Sue Cripp, James, who's in the chat room. Hello, James. Branwen, Wayne, Virgil, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue. You started with us on the 5th of March, Yam Yam, 2020. Zambuck, Lloyd Berg, and David Copley. From 2019, we've still got John from Dire Straits, who is in the chat room. That's John Simmons. Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waper, Alexander Allen, Matthew, Craig S. Glenn Bell, Professor Dr. Dentist, Murray Waper, and Andy Dowling. From Still with us from 2018, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S., Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Dominic DeMassey, Maddock Mann, Kane Birch, Jimmy Spuds back with us, Tony Wall and Steve Shinners. From 2017, still with us is Alison Ayame and Craig Glasby and the oldest and only survivor from 2016, Janelle Louise. Some people choose to do it by PayPal, which is Mr T and Anne Reid and Dave S from Cairns and Noel Hamilton. If your name was missed and you think it shouldn't be, it would be because your credit card's probably expired. Hop back on and renew it. That'd be good. But thank you to everybody who helps out, much appreciated. Some of you have been with us a long, long time. So that's great. All right, given we are coming up to Christmas, I thought I'd give you a Christmas message. This one is from one of our federal politicians. 
Terry Young, Liberal National Party, and he's got a lovely message for us with a bit of luck. Here it is. As, as this is the last full sitting week before we break for Christmas, I thought it appropriate that I take the opportunity to deliver a Merry Christmas message to my electorate of Longman. As I've stated, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Why does the birth of one baby in a small town in the Middle East in a town called Bethlehem warrant such a celebration over 2,000 years later? Jesus' existence and life is, of course, well documented, not just by Jews and Christians, but by historians, whether they hold a faith or not. But again, I ask the question, why all the controversy? Of course, this is because of who Jesus claimed to be, which, according to those of the Christian faith, was God Almighty himself. There's never been, and never should be, any government's mandate to tell citizens what they should believe in, especially when it comes to matters of faith. However, for many years, Australia was a nation based on Judeo-Christian principles. As many have said, whether you have a faith or not, the Christian principles work. Christian values such as keeping your word, paying your taxes, being generous with your fellow man, not judging others, helping those less fortunate than yourself, paying workers a fair wage for a fair day's work, and environmental stewardship, just to name a few. But with the slide of the Christian faith in our society, as evidenced in the recent census, whether for the first time there are less people who say they are of, of the Christian faith than are not. We have seen the effects of a society that doesn't have a common value set, and people are left to make up their own individual values. We can directly correlate the decline of the Christian faith in our country to increases in domestic violence, the breakdown of the family unit, drug use, crime rates, basically anarchy. But probably the most negative effect of this change, which is the underlying cause of the increases in the issues I just mentioned before, which is a society we've become more inward-looking than outward-looking. In other words, more self-absorbed. Perhaps this Christmas we could ponder and reflect on this and consider others before ourselves and consider this man Jesus, who he claimed to be and what he taught, a man after whom even our history's timeline is measured. There you go. That's in our federal parliament. That's the calibre of discussion. He's still it, it all started to fall apart at the point where he said, Jesus is well documented. Yes. Yes. A and everything from that point on just fell over. <laughs> yeah. That was the one. That was, strangely enough, one of the things that got me the most as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I uh, cannot believe that. Someone actually say Australia Judeo-Christian. Mm. You know, well, exactly. It's, it's one of those things. It's not a. It's not even a real term, as I understand it. I think you did actually expose on that, didn't you? At some stage, Trevor, there was some yeah. discussion over Judeo-Christian not being a real term. It's one of those things. It's that it's clear that the. Right-wing Christian nutters have overtaken the LNP, but then their talking points seem to be coming direct from Fox News in the US. Mm, the term, the expression Judeo-Christian, we did it, it, like, it doesn't appear in Hansard until around 1980 or something like that, and, and then just gradually, uh, I think Howard, well, Howard's probably before 1980. Was, uh, it, anyway, during the Howard era, he was big on pushing this idea of Judeo-Christian and it, it came to be accepted that as a, 
that's a common sort of expression, but it never existed yeah, prior to 1970 in Hansard. It hadn't been mentioned at all. Mm. It's an American idea because the Jewish lobby is powerful in America. Yes. Uh, and so it was an acceptance of Judaism rather than the pogroms that they'd done for the last 2,000 years. Yes. Yes. And I think it was to sort of also avoid claims of anti-Semitism at the time as well. So Probably. Yeah. So just what a load of... Imagine you've got a chance to speak in Parliament and that's the best you can do. For goodness sake. Yeah, I know. That was a load of shit, wasn't it? Mm. Hey, can well, you, can you imagine on... if an atheist stood up and said, of course, mm. well, all that's wrong with society is mm. the religious nutters uh, and, you know, society has proved ever since less and less people believe in religion. Mm. Ah. One of the things I found most disturbing, but he listed amongst the whole evidence of slide and that sort of stuff was marriage breakdowns. And I thought to myself, yeah, okay, so you want everything back in the 1960s, do you? You have to prove that someone did something wrong to you so you can go out there and actually attack them and that sort of stuff and get a, an at-fault divorce. Mm. You know, it's just all garbage, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, and then have the social stigma to deal with. Mm. Even when it was legal, you still didn't want to get divorced. I know that. Mm. Anyway, that's some of the fine minds we've got operating in our federal government at the moment. Same group of people. Well, I think the federal opposition, but anyway. Mm. Same group of people responsible for our submarine disaster. And yes, dear listener, we've got a little submarine article here. This one, have a listen to this. Artificial intelligence, AI. Drones and deep space radar are among the technologies that will be used by Australia and its AUKUS allies to counter China's aggression in the Pacific. Australia's Defence Minister Richard Miles met with his counterparts from the United States and the UK to announce the second pillar of the AUKUS deal, first pillar being subs themselves. And it goes on, while Australia's planned acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines has been the main focus, the second pillar focuses on advanced technologies. AI technology will be used on systems, including on the Poseidon aircraft, to process information from Sono boys, which detect and transmit underwater data to improve our anti-submarine warfare capabilities, according to a joint statement. I don't know about you, but when our Defence Minister starts announcing that AI is going to have the capacity to really improve our, our anti-submarine capacity, anti-submarine warfare capabilities. Do you think to yourself, gee, I wonder if the Chinese will be any good at developing AI and to do exactly the same to $368 billion worth of our submarines? No, exactly. It's one of those things that... Like the chatbot, it, it'll give you false indications of activity with a high probability of assurance. Mm. I'm quite sceptical of the capacity of AI, but, you know, I, I'm open to being persuaded. But if you, accept that it's if you accept it's true, then you have to accept that the other side will be doing the same thing and perhaps you shouldn't be putting exactly. all of your eggs in the one basket. Exactly, and they will be developing countermeasures and all that sort of stuff to defend their own fleet against it. Mm. 
Indeed. So I just think it's a lot of nonsense. Yeah. What do you think of AI generally? To... Sorry, Scott, go on. The whole sabre rattling over China is getting out of hand because you once be able to used to say it was just on the coalition side. Now it's going out of there onto the Labor side. Mm. You know, it's one of those things that is getting out of hand. And I think to myself, you know, I know you and I disagree over Taiwan, but it's one of those things I think we should use our position as a good friend of China and a good friend of the United States to get them to talk about Taiwan. Mm. and actually get into the Taiwanese is and actually say to them, well, if you agree to give up the, if you agree to give up your claims out of the South China Sea, you agree to give up any historic claims to any part of China, then we might be able to get you moving towards some sort of diplomatic recognition on the other side. Because it's it's one of those things, it's, it is for all intents and purposes its own country. Now, I know it's, I know it's still technically part of China and that sort of stuff, but it doesn't look like that. It's got its own currency. It's got its own way of doing things. It is basically its own country now. Mm. And it has developed, it has evolved from a military dictatorship under Kuomin, under the Kuomintang, which was headed by Chiang Kai-shek. That was a military dictatorship there. It was a dictatorship for a very long time and it wasn't only until the old timers and that sort of stuff voted them out in their parliament. But they have evolved into a democracy now. Mm. And I honestly don't believe that they would be particularly happy with having to live under Chinese rule because they don't want the facial recognition cameras and all that sort of stuff set up exactly the way they have to in China. Anyway. Democracy is yes. over, right. overrated, Scott. But, but anyway, <laughs> Joe, Joe, AI, as our resident tech guy, what, what are your thoughts of artificial intelligence? Because it's sort of the flavour of the month in the sort of podcasting world that I listen to, which is all about how to make and promote and do podcasting. And I keep saying AI is going to change all of these things. You got any thoughts on AI? AI? Is, it's, it's a woolly term. It's been around for a long time mm -hmm. and it's always been just around the corner. Mm -hmm. the, the current flavour is large language models, which effectively use past history to predict the future. Mm -hmm. And it's quite good at doing certain things. So if you want to generate a wall of text that sounds reasonable, it's great. If you want factual information, yeah, it's fairly hit and miss. Mm -hmm. And again, with the, the painting, it takes previous paintings and is able to predict what a painting that you ask it to look like would look like mm. and then it adds and subtracts or subtracts from random noise actually mm -hmm. until it gets the painting that it, it envisages yep it, it's a tool unlike any other tool it will have some advantages but i don't think it's the panacea that everyone keeps crying about right so reading between the lines it's being a bit oversold at the moment perhaps. oh absolutely as is mm. as is most new technology mm. Good to know, Joe the Tech Guy. All right, we've often spoken about uh, the generational divide in our voting and that, well, you mentioned earlier just now, Scott, how people get more conservative as they get older. And mm -hmm. But it's becoming really pronounced here in Australia. But in the UK, I came across this article talking about a YouGov opinion poll data from 2018 
And what they were looking at was how people voted. If you're over the age of, if only people over the age of 65 were allowed to vote, the Labor Party would be all but wiped out. This is based on 2018 data. Whereas uh, if only Britons under 25 were allowed to vote, there would be no Tory MPs whatsoever. So let me just show you on the screen what it would look like in terms of the difference under 25s versus over 65s. And it's such a dramatic voting pattern based on age. So that's happening all over the world and that was just a representation of what's happening in the UK. I haven't seen anything similar for Australia. I'd be interested to see if there's data like that for Australia. Hmm. There we go. That's that one. Not a lot to say, except hmm. And another one here, just we've been talking about immigration and housing lately and yeah. there's lots of talk about the increase in immigration numbers and there's a chart on the screen that is showing you the immigration numbers um, produced by The Guardian, sources the Australian Bureau of Statistics and obviously negative during the COVID pandemic and largely a big increase since. Effectively, the argument in the article is that despite the huge boom in recent years in immigration, you've got to remember there was a huge decrease during COVID. So our current immigration level is pretty much what was expected, say, back in 2018, looking forward where we would have had in terms of immigration over the next uh, five years. So I, I'm curious as to what happened in COVID. Did people actually leave or was this yeah. citizens who couldn't get back? Or Well, people did leave. What, like why, all those foreign students left I, back to China. But, but were, yeah, but they weren't citizens, were they? No, but that's part of our immigration no, on temporary visas. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. one of those things. You've actually got to look at it as a whole lot. Mm. And the immigrants were a total group in the in the, as part of our population, and a number of them did leave during COVID because they wanted to be back home and that type of thing where they, I don't know, they probably possibly felt safer and that sort of stuff being at home. Well, they weren't getting any assistance here. We were just leaving people in the lurch no. and saying, yeah. uh, if you can't get back to your own country, well, we're not, we're not going to help you. So people had to make it back. Mm. Anyway, so, so yeah. That was that one, and and sort of blaming high immigration for our current housing crisis is ignoring that fact that we're pretty much at the immigration level we should have been, um, what we were expecting it to be prior to the pandemic, and so it's complicated. There's all sorts of factors going in there. Right, Henry Kissinger. He died. How I'm missing Ding you. dong, the bears is dead. Yeah. Hmm. Any thoughts on Henry Kissinger? Is it rest in peace, peace or good riddance, Scott or Jane? I think it's a bit of good riddance, you know, because if you look at what he actually was involved in and that sort of stuff, Southeast Asia is a hell of a, it's got a hell of a lot fewer citizens because of Kissinger's behaviour. You mm. know, he was the one behind the bombing campaign in Cambodia. He 
really did fuck that country up very badly. Mm. You know, it, it's one of those things like, you know, they reckon that the Khmer Rouge was a, a direct result of the US bombing campaign. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. Mm. And then, you know, the assistance for Cambodia or, or Campuchia, as it was called then, was from Vietnam. And because they got their because they got their help from the wrong side of the Cold War, the Yanks turned around and said, "No, you can't have that." Mm. So they poured military aid and that sort of stuff into the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Well, Jesus Christ, mm. you know that was ridiculous. And clearly, Kissinger's fingerprints were all over that. And years afterwards, mm. when the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge were well known, America's, yeah. America was still recognising the Khmer Rouge as the legitimate. Legitimate government, government. of Cambridge, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so he was Secretary of State <laughs> and National Security Advisor to both President Nixon and President Ford from 69 to 77, but he was this informal advisor to lots of presidents, including Reagan and Clinton, the two Bushes, and Donald Trump. A notable exception to Kissinger's influence in Washington was the Carter administration. Another. And, you know... Not not only was it filthy foreigners that got killed by him, mm. it was alleged that during the Paris peace talks where a peace was on the cards, apparently he said, no, no, if, if you don't sign up to this peace accord, you'll get a bit better deal in the future so that he could win the, the election, or rather his president could win the election. Correct. This was in so terms of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yes, in extending the Vietnam War. Yes, quite clear evidence that he Cost, was... Costing thousands of American lives. Yes. Mm. According to this article from the John Menadieu blog, I think it was, uh, Kissinger's record as a warmonger is bloody indeed, includes encouraging Indonesia's President Suharto to kill up to 1.2 million alleged communists in purges. He advocated the illegal carpet bombing in Cambodia. Um advised Pakistan's president to crush an aspiring political movement seeking autonomy for East Pakistan. He encouraged Sahado to invade East Timor, giving the green light to a neo-fascist military junta to overthrow Argentina's Isabel Perón and schemed with a cabal of Latin American neo-fascist dictators to assassinate their political foes in Operation Condor, famously said about Chile, you know, there's no way the United States is going to put up with a bunch of communists. I'm going to do something about it. So got rid of Allende. Openly called for the invasion of Iraq, supported the invasion of Afghanistan. And on the good side, Kissinger wanted to normalise relations with China. So if you wanted to say something positive about him, he was involved in the normalisation of relations with yeah, China. I think that was inevitable because China was such a large country that it was it was going to it was going to throw off the shackles of poverty and that sort of stuff eventually mm. because it, it's something that was that big you couldn't keep down forever. It was going to grow and with growth comes economic growth and then they were going to end up being what they are today. So I honestly believe that it would have been very foolish for the Yanks not to get on board with that because that would have just it would have made them look ridiculous if they were if they were trying to ignore the legitimate government of the People's Republic of China and saying, "Well, you're not really the legitimate government. The legitimate government is the Republic of China." 
you know, it's one well, of those things I just think. Funnily enough, China was the, was kind of like the bogeyman it is today, <laughs> in a sense. But yeah, it was, it was because yeah. you know they, they got involved. They got involved in that war between the North and the South of, of North and South Korea and that sort of stuff, and they took the Yanks to the brink of defeat, but the Yanks actually held their line and that sort of stuff, and they ended up settling over the 38th parallel. Anyway, Gough Whitlam independently reopened relations between Australia and China. And Mm. would it have been Billy McMahon was the Liberal leader at the time, basically accused Whitlam of being a foolish commie sympathiser and then unbeknownst to them, Kissinger was smoothing the way for Nixon to Mm. appear and go over there and and smooth relations and the Liberal mm. Party looked like a bunch of idiots because they were criticising mm. Goff and then within 12 months there was the US doing exactly what Goff had been doing. So, so that was um, Kissinger, Goff-Whitlam, China in that story. Paul Keating came out and made some favourable remarks about Kissinger. So, Did he? Yes. Yeah. So, again, it was to do with China because Keating worked with Kissinger in the China Development Bank, which underwrote new Chinese city plans. So possibly because it was on the topic of China that he felt favourably to him, but towards him. But, yeah, Keating came out with some positive words for Kissinger. Yeah, and the other thing, if you're looking for something positive as well, is that according to former Australian diplomat Tony Kevin, Kissinger was sympathetic towards Russia's perspective on Ukraine, that becoming a member of NATO would compromise Russia's security, and he virtually predicted the Russian invasion if things did not improve. There you go. Right. COVID. You still get people today talking about, ah, oh, sort of function on Sunday. And maybe it was because Palaszczuk at that point had announced her resignation and just, again, it was an older crowd who were just really ready to bag uh, what had happened in terms of quarantining and, and our response to COVID in Australia. And I didn't, I held back because I was a good guest. I don't always have to rant. Sometimes I do bite my tongue. And held back, but I wanted to say, what the fuck do you think happened in other countries? Like there were the, the excess death rates in other countries was huge, and they had huge problems. And particularly if you're in Queensland, it wasn't the most unpleasant experience. And the whole point was, we waited until a vaccine came, and we got one, and then we could reopen, and you know. Yeah, even considerably with hind- less of an impact. Yeah, so even with hindsight, looking at it, all perfectly made sense to do what was done. And these people want to go, oh, what a big, what a big hullabaloo over nothing that was, you know. Why did we go through all that? And, and we wouldn't do that again. And I'm thinking, well, if, if thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands of people are dying and you might have to wait 18 months or two years for a vaccine, well... Yeah, we would do the same again. 
So anyway, I've got a chart to show you, which is a comparison of the OECD countries' health system spending during the uh, two years from 2020 to 2022. So really the, the main first two years of the COVID pandemic. And I'll put that up. And here it is. So this is spending on healthcare. Mm, maybe, can I make that bigger? Joe's disappeared, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah, okay. Let me just look at my version. Australia increased spending by 1.7% above what we would normally have spent. And the average was 9%. So in terms of spending on extra on health on healthcare, marginal, 1.7% more than we normally would have. The average was 9% more. So in terms of spending. But then going to the excess deaths and in terms of Australia, the red one down the bottom there, excess deaths of 4.4%, whereas the average was 14%. And so we got a really good um, result compared to other countries in the OECD. And just, you know... Don't want to give us enough credit for for the way that was handled. And, you know, it didn't always relate to the the measures that were taken or the money that was spent. So Mexico had the lowest health system spending and the highest excess mortality rate. Japan spent less than expected on healthcare but had a great low excess mortality rate but that's to do with cultural issues in Japan. So an already healthy yeah, population, I mean, mask wearing before the pandemic. It's fairly normal and all that sort yeah, of stuff in Japan. Extensive so. vaccination uptake, free medical care, and just social compliance with public health measures. So mm. there were, you know, cultural issues that were at play there. So, so yeah, do you guys have come you Have seen the Tim Minchin beat poem Storm? Talk, talking about being a good guest at your party. No, what is he saying? So he's at a dinner party and there's a hippie there who's making all sorts of assertions and he has a bit of a rant. Okay. And I can just see you doing the same thing, so. <laughs> and he and he's doing it at a dinner party, is he? At a dinner party, yeah. No, well, you see, I, I, I think I can read the room and decide whether it okay. now's the time or not, so. You know, and it's whether it's the host who's making the outrageous allegation or whether it's another guest. And it's one of the factors to take into account. So, so yeah, there we go. Landon in the chat room says, I got COVID in December 2020, 16 days in bed with fever and feeling like death. I couldn't go to a doctor because they'd have carted me off to a fever hospital. Okay. No, that's in China where you were compulsorily yeah. sent to a fever hospital and yeah. that sort of stuff. So. okay. And I think they're mentioning that uh, Kissinger went out with uh, Candace Bergman at one stage. Really? Mm. And Quite an age difference there, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, last week I did a thing on the identity trapped trap by Sasha Monk. 
Sorry about the editing on that. I was using Descript and it was a little bit harsh and a few things got chopped out. I did it on a device down the Gold Coast. So when I'm back on the Gold Coast, if I've got time, I'll just go back to the original file and only just edit it a bit lighter because I noticed that some words got chopped off. But anyway, uh, got some feedback. Uh, One writer wrote, Hi, Trevor. I've started listening to your episode on identity and I'm afraid you really seem to be seeking out just the information which reaffirms your own beliefs. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. I never have that criticism when I bag religion, submarines, boomer-friendly taxes, <laughs> the LNP, Trump, etc. But I've had it a few times when it comes to the voice. And so if you feel that way with the voice where we disagree but not on issues where we agree then that says something about you, not me. So I think what happens with the voice is people don't like my argument, they disagree with it, and then start looking at things like whether I'm grabbing information that just reaffirms my own beliefs and complaining about it, yet they won't complain when I do that on every other topic where they happen to agree with it. So... Consistency, ladies and gentlemen, is important. And, and this wasn't one where I actually was seeking out the information. It actually just fell in my lap because Yasha Monk was interviewed on Late Night Live with Philip Adams. So if you want to hear more from him, go into Late Night Live with Philip Adams. And even later in this episode, I'm going to be talking about articles by Ross Stitt and Chris Trotter looking at the Maori situation in New Zealand and, you know, I didn't, I'm not here, that came from the John Menady blog, so I don't sit at their computer and Google, find me left-wingers who have turned against identity politics or something like that. It's just whether they come across my newsfeed or not. But, of course, I'd be filtering the newsfeed and I might well see things that are contrary to the argument I want to perhaps persuade you. But I don't really actually want to persuade people about the voice. I just want to just want to say that there is an alternative thought process there. I don't really care whether people agree or not. I'm not trying to persuade, but the point is this is a podcast. I, I, this is not a court of law or a commission of inquiry, and provided I'm not misrepresenting the other side, I don't have to preach for the other side and give you the full nuts and bolts of what the other side is saying. I can simply summarise briefly what their position is and then go as long as I like in encountering it. It's a goddamn personal podcast, for God's sake. Sorry, Joe. But I I think with The Voice and with a lot of other things where identity politics are in play, it's been very much a misrepresentation of the other side as racist. Mm. It's been lazy argumentation. It hasn't been a good, these are the real reasons you need the voice. It's been a, if you don't vote for the voice, you must be a racist. Yes. And that's just lazy argumentation. Yeah. Like my motivations, my motivations are irrelevant. So what does it matter if I'm seeking out information which affirms my beliefs? 
if in fact the information is correct and the arguments are sound. You know, that's the important point. Is it actually a sound argument? Deal with those issues, dear listener. If you feel compelled to write in and criticise, then don't waste time questioning my motives or my biases because, sure, I've got a a bias on issues and, sure, I've got motivations. But but what's it matter if I'm right? (laughs) So deal with the substantive issues. Nobody has except... Liam, who came on the podcast and gave a good account of uh, of himself and his, you know, we ran through issues and that was genuinely the only time where somebody has attempted to deal with the issues rather than deal with um, aspersions on character and, or motivations. So, yeah. But if you are going to send your criticisms... A quick warning is I'm losing patience. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be abrupt and less gentle than I used to be. It's kind of like where I got to with the 12th man, where I just got less gentle with the 12th man after a while and he got sort of, he sort of felt that, I think. And I've kind of reached that point where I'm, I'm going to be more abrupt and less gentle. So, Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. I don't think you're abrupt with me, with, you know, mm. even though you and I both disagreed on the voice and that type of thing. It's just that I could see where you were coming from. Yeah. I could understand your arguments and that sort of stuff, but I didn't agree with them. Perfectly yeah, that fine. Was princi- and that was principally because I was looking at it from a different point of view. I was looking at it from a more emotional point of view, I think, more so than anything else. Yeah. You had a different it's- priority. Perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I didn't think you were racist or anything else. It's just, and that is what I found very disappointing about the yes side because Joe was bang on the money there mm-hmm. that you said that the arguments from the yes case was, well, if you're not voting no, if you're voting no, you're obviously racist, mm. which is nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, if it was all racist and that sort of stuff that were voting that way, then you'd have to look at, You'd have to look at some, you'd have to conclude that around about 60% of the population is racist. Which is the really sad thing, is that, that, is that people are prepared to conclude that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think that we are. Mm. You know, we, we do have some issues around race in this country. There's no point denying that. But I do mm. not believe that um, you would be that racist to say this is you could actually say that uh, we are racist um, mm. based on that vote. Maybe New Zealand is full of racists. We're going to talk about New Zealand now. It's quite interesting what's been going on over there. So the country's new coalition government was sworn in and said that it's going to review the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, which upholds Maori rights, including the right to autonomy. So the government has announced at least a dozen policies that provide for Maori will be repealed or reviewed. Bunch of racists over there. Must be. They voted for a government that went into an election willing to remove race-based policies that favoured the Maori. Have you heard anybody... Smoking. Have you heard anybody complaining about what a 
black mark this was on New Zealand's character that they elected these guys? No. Mm. Yes, but who knows of any famous Kiwis? <laughs> we, well, all famous Kiwis eventually become famous Australians, don't they? You know, well, there is that, we, yes. We, we co-opt them, yep. So announcing the changes on Friday, Luxon, the Prime Minister, said voters wanted services provided on the basis of need, not race, and he was strengthening democracy for all New Zealanders. A bunch of racists must have voted for a guy who'd say that. So the Treaty of Waitangi is an agreement reached in 1840 between the British and the Maori. While it is not a legal document, it forms New Zealand's constitution and its principles which include the right of Maori for self-determination and the protection of Maori interests are woven into legislation. This began in the 1970s with the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal, a commission of inquiry that investigates treaty breaches by the Crown. Now, I'm not sure where I got that statement from. I think this is from The Guardian as to what the Treaty of Waitangi says. I'm going to be quoting from a guy called Chris Trotter, who is a lefty in New Zealand. I think he's kind of like a Guy Rundle, uh, New Zealand's version of a Guy Rundle. And he argues, it seems to me, that the Treaty of Waitangi did not talk about cooperative government. Can you possibly imagine a bunch of white fellows who thought the Maori were savages? Can you possibly contemplate that they would have signed a treaty that allowed for cooperative governance? He, he says it doesn't do that. But anyway, no doubt there are lots of different opinions on that one. New Zealand is going to... So from the John Menadue blog, I came across this article by Ross Stitt. Just came across my news feed, didn't actively seek it out, but of course when I saw it I thought... That's interesting and that's relevant to our discussion here. So he said that, you know, the voice was a disaster for the Labor government, Anthony Albanese, but events in the Middle East, the interest rate hikes, the High Court decision on immigration detention, cost of living crisis, basically provided a distraction from that loss. Scott, would you agree with that? Like, does it seem, other than mm, on this yeah. podcast, where I'm just out beating the drum still occasionally, sort of it's done and dusted as an issue largely and people have moved on and there has been a series of sort of biggish news items that have pushed it into the far reaches of people's memories? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it has been basically forgotten by the public and that sort of thing. Mm. It's just one of those things. Clearly the government has been bruised by it, so they've yeah. got to get on, dust themselves off and move on. Mm. So when asked about his commitment to the Uluru Statement from the Heart on the 15th of October, um, um, Albanese expressed his respect for the outcome of the referendum. There was no mention of treaty or truth-telling. And no doubt the ALP strategists are currently considering their, considering their political options. It would be surprising if they weren't also analysing New Zealand's latest election. The rights of the Maori population featured in the campaign and the subsequent negotiations led to the country's new coalition comprising the National Party, the Libertarian ACT Party and the NZ First Party. Uh, according to this article by Ross Stitt, the previous Labor government, which was Jacinda Ardern before she resigned, 
and then her replacement, took many steps aimed at improving the lives of Indigenous New Zealanders. This included establishing a separate Maori Health Authority, commissioning a report on meeting the goals of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and promoting the use of Maori language and pursuing co-governance, the sharing of certain governance arrangements between Maori and non-Maori. So according to Ross Stitt, many of these steps proved controversial and were opposed during the election by the parties that ultimately won. And the support for the Jacinda Ardern Labor government, I can't remember the name of her replacement, its support crashed from 50% in 2020 to 27% in that election. That's a huge crash, Scott. Like yeah. 50 down to 27% is a lot. Yeah. There are many explanations for the wipeout, but significant sections of the Kiwi electorate rejected Labor's progressive agenda on Maori issues. And this was articulated by Chris Trotter, one of New Zealand's leading left-wing political analysts, in an article titled Losing the Working Class. And Trotter argues that the co-governance initiative was a crucial catalyst for electoral defeat. And... You didn't see my message? We can hear you there. Hang on ah, a second, okay. Joe. I'm going to mute Joe because he's... Yeah, mm, probably half an hour or so. There. Yep. Now I've muted Joe because he's having a private conversation. Where was I? What happened was... Trotter contends that as a result, when the Labor government of Jacinda Ardern moved forward with Indigenous co-governance... The sovereignty grenade finally exploded and Labor discovered what it would take to make the working class stop voting for it. And what else did he say here? Uh, significantly, the leaders of both ACT, ACT, and New Zealand First, so these are the two of the parties in this new coalition in New Zealand, the leaders of two of those parties, guess what? They're Maori. Mm. Interesting. I guess people would treat them like um, Jacinta Nampi Jimpa They're Price. obviously, co yeah, they're obviously coconuts. Just they're not, not the right type of Maori. Exactly. Yeah. Given the voice referendum and the Kiwi election, ALB strategists might worry that pursuing two progressive an Indigenous agenda in Australia could alienate many of the traditional working-class voters. So basically saying, based on what's happened in New Zealand, Labor would have to tread carefully in Australia if it pursues things like treaty or self-determination. Yeah, which I agree wholeheartedly with them on because it's just that if they were to actually pursue that line, then they would potentially be wiped out. Mm. because the coalition would actually say, no, we're not going to go that far. Mm. You know, it's probably why Palaszczuk decided to abandon the whole treaty negotiations up here because the coalition had politicised its response to the voice, which left the um, opposition leader, Chris Afuli, the um, option that he could actually attack the Labor Party over the negotiations on a treaty. Yes. She cleverly said, well... 
Unless you get bipartisan support for these things, there's no point pursuing yeah, you're it. Not and the LNP, agree, LNP oh, is, not, is not going to come to the party, so we're not even going to no. bother, which bother. is a very clever exactly. political move. Mm. Um, yeah. All right. Which is precisely what um, Albanese should have done with the voice. He should have actually said, look, we can't proceed with it because the coalition is going to say no. You guys work on the coalition, get them to over the line and that sort of stuff to say yes, then we'll pursue it then. Mm. Maybe people wouldn't have believed him. I think, you remember the opinion polls were 60-40 in the beginning, so mm. it probably needed that defeat to convince people. He could say it now when it comes to treaty or other sorts of self-determination things. Um. He could run the argument and people would believe him. But I don't. maybe they wouldn't have believed him before. don't know. So one final thing on the Maori is that atheism is on the rise. This is an article from The Conversation. And the study was a particularly small sample size. So it was more about qualitative rather than quantitative. But the authors wrote that religious belief amongst the Maori has shifted significantly and... Um, well, actually, this figure's okay. The number of Maori identifying as having no religion in the census between 2006 and 2018 increased from 36.5% to 53.5%. So that was the increase in the number of Maori having uh, no religion. And Christianity affiliation for Maori fell from 46 to 29. Now, that's in a 12-year period. Now, are the Maori simply rejecting Christianity or are they rejecting all supernatural, all supernatural phenomena, including traditional Maori beliefs? And these academics argue, our research examined the apparent rise of Maori atheism. We found the colonial history of religion was a driving force for Maori who identified as atheists. So they found people were rejecting Christianity because they saw it as a colonial sort of cultural feature that wasn't suitable to the Maori. Scott and Joe, I've often been bemused by our Indigenous brothers and sisters' attachment to Christianity and not, and not seeing that as a dilution of Indigenous culture here. It, it's was just... it not a Native American who said when the first white men came, they had the Bibles and we had the land, and we closed our eyes to pray, and when we opened them again, we had the Bibles and they had the land? <laughs> it's a good line. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Here's another one from the same research. We also found Maori atheists said they experienced discrimination for their lack of religion and their Maoriness was questioned within their community or work. Really? People in America have said the same thing. About Native Americans? That, that, no, 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 black people. So oh. African-Americans yes. have said that effectively Christianity is part of the identity of being black in America. Mm. And if you are an atheist, you're very identity is being questioned mm. by your community. Mm. So it finishes off here. Our research highlights the diversity of non-religion amongst Maori 
which is neither reflected in representation for Maori uh, nor considered in Maori-Crown relations and it's complex. Anyway, link in the show notes, relevant sections. But, yeah, I wonder if that sort of discussion will find its way into uh, Australian Indigenous arguments about whether uh, Australian Indigenous people will drop Christianity, seeing it as a sort of a colonial cultural imposition, and whether being non-spiritual will call into question your legitimate aspiration of being Indigenous. See if those arguments make their way across the Tasman. Certainly certainly in the RI figures for Queensland, and admittedly I've not seen them for several years, Mm. but the number of native beliefs or whatever the the class is called um, was considerably lower than the Christian. Yes. Yeah. And I, I I wonder how many Aboriginals still holds to traditional beliefs uh, as opposed to some form of Christianity blended possibly with the, the surviving bits. Mm-hmm. I, th- I predict there, if you really questioned, there would be a s- surprisingly high number of people who have a confusing mix of traditional spiritual probably um, belief with Christian belief in some, mm. in some inex- I mean, the Holy Trinity is inexplicable in itself, but adding yes. traditional spiritual beliefs into that mix would be... Uh, Something Impossible else again, and I think there would be a mm. number of a high number of people who somehow would adhere to both in some complex mix that sounds impossible. But but when forced, say, uh, with one period of religious instruction at school to choose between them, mm. which one would they choose? Yeah, well, whoever offers the best lollies and the most entertaining. Well, possibly, yes. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, that's enough, I think. There we go. Trip around the world, New Zealand. Will that transfer to Australia? We'll find out in the next year. This is going to be the last episode for this year. Take a bit of a break, come back in the new year, unless something extraordinary happens. Any other thoughts, gentlemen? Any other closing comments you'd like to make? Or just see you later. You know, not in a Christian terms, but Merry Christmas to all our listeners and Nadoric Claren to you, my love, Sharon. Mm. So. There we go. Happy holidays. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Indeed. Or even Happy Holiday, which is the Pastafarian greeting. Oh, is it? Yeah, I know that. Singular. Mm. There we go. Singular, yes. Yeah. There we go. Okay. All right. Well, we're done for this episode. We're done for the year. Keep an eye, you should be following us on Facebook because you'll get notifications when our episode's coming out. So keep an eye on that to find out when the next one's going to be. It'll be a Tuesday night sometime in the new year. Talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night.